My name is Brian Biedebach, and I teach here at the Master's Seminary. Um, prior to teaching here, uh, I served for about uh, over 20 years in the mission field. 19 of those years were in Africa. Most of those 19 years were in Malawi, which is one of the world's poorest different countries. And uh, I was involved primarily with church planting and church strengthening and pastoral training. Um, during that time, some other missionaries and myself noticed a trend in missions where things were shifting more towards social action and less towards gospel proclamation. Uh, you can imagine uh, going into a church 50 years ago here in the States and them having a big map on the wall and uh, pins on the map and uh, pictures of all over it. And, you know, if, if you're in Kansas, then you're right in the middle of the map because we split Russia in half so that your church can be right in the middle of the map. And uh, and then you got yarn going from your big pin to all the other pins. And 50 years ago, most of those cards would have been people who were doing church planting, church strengthening, uh, Matthew 28 kind of ministry. And uh, today it's possible to go in the same church and the pictures have changed. The map could be the same uh, for the most part. And uh, you would have potentially um, very few of those guys doing that kind of church planting, church strengthening type of uh, ministries. Uh, in fact, I had a church approach me one time when I was planting a church in Malawi and said, and they approached me, said, could we support your work? And I said, it's interesting that you contacted me uh, since I didn't have any contact with that church prior to that. And they said, well, we've, we, want, we have a certain part of our budget earmarked for church planting and we can't find church planters that are uh, doing you know, the type of ministry that we want to see done. And you're the closest thing we found to a church planter is what they've said. Um, and that, that began me to think, hey, th what's happening in missions and what's happening with churches and um, how is this, uh, uh, what's going on? And I, I, I entered a, a study. I had an opportunity to work on a degree at a university in South Africa at Stellenbosch University. And I spoke to my advisor and told him I wanted to do a study on missions and what missionaries were doing in Central Africa and how that related to social action and gospel proclamation. And a big part of my study I wanted to do was based on Matthew 28 and how people were viewing the Great Commission as missionaries. And uh, he said, uh, it was, it was a, he, he was not really of, of my same viewpoint. Uh, he was more liberal theologically, but he said, if you're gonna do a study on Matthew 28, you should also do a study on Matthew 25 talking about ministering to the least of these because that is the foundational passage to support social action in the church today. We need to minister to the least of these. And so I said, fine, I'll do a study on both and put it together. And then we did a study. Uh, we got, I got a list of uh, more than 500 missionaries in, Central, in Malawi um, who uh, were on religious workers' visas, and we did some survey work among them. Um, that dissertation is is available, and you could you could Google my name and, and probably download it if you're interested in it. Um, but I've entitled this "Social Action versus Preaching in Missions" because those are the two really um, uh, the pendulum tends to swing different ways. If you talk to some missionaries and some mission boards, sometimes they're really focused on preaching. We're only sitting out preachers now, and we're not sitting out any medical missionaries or well diggers or whatever. And then sometimes it swings the other way. Oh, no, we're looking for people to help in this area, and we want people to do orphan care and all this, the social action, a lot of good things. And I want to state from the very beginning here that I'm not opposed 
to doing some good things for Jesus Christ. I am not the missionary who's against orphans, who's anti-orphan. Um, but I do think that we need to have the right focus. And so I'm going to present three different viewpoints on social action and gospel proclamation that are trending in missions today. The first one I'm calling the priority of preaching. Uh, books sometimes refer to this position as traditional prioritism, but I've just simply named it as priority of preaching. This is the traditional view, though. This is the view that says spiritual renewal comes through the proclamation of the gospel. Social action is a byproduct. And this is, this is my position. This is, this is what I believe, and this is the historic position. This is the one that for uh, as long as modern missions have been around, it's been primarily focused on preaching the word, on proclamation. And you can go back and look at World Congresses on Evangelism. And if you know anything about the World Congresses on Evangelism, uh, nowadays they are very liberal. But you don't have to go back very far. You can go back to the 1960s and find this statement, which is the purpose statement of the 1966 World Congress on Evangelism. They state this, Our Lord Jesus Christ has not only called us to himself, he has sent us out into the world to be his witnesses. In the power of his spirit, he commands us to proclaim, notice the word proclaim there, to all people the good news of salvation through his atoning death and resurrection, to invite them to discipleship through repentance and faith, to baptize them in the fellowship of his church and teach them all of his words. Notice words like baptism and teaching. These are th th This statement is one that we probably could find fault with if we looked at uh, uh, long enough, because we could find fault with just about everything right, if we looked at long enough. But uh, for the most part, most of us would say, yeah, I could agree with that statement, that we should be evangelizing people, that we should be proclaiming the good news of salvation, that it involves repentance, that people should be baptized, and they should be taught all that Christ has commanded them to do. It's a pretty conservative, traditional prioritism preaching priority statement. But there's a second uh, position, and that's called holistic mission. And holism is a buzzword in mission, missionary circles sometimes. People talk about holistic ministry. And um, this is the idea that spiritual renewal comes through preaching and social action. And the idea behind this is that you need to minister to the whole person. You minister to their physical needs, as Jesus did, ministering to people's physical needs, and you minister to their spiritual needs as well. And so the picture is that we are involved in not just their spiritual needs, but their physical needs. And in some ways, it's a bit of a misnomer because traditional prioritism or priority in preaching doesn't neglect people's uh, physical needs. It simply says that the focus is preaching. And the outflow of a transformed heart is that he's going to reach out to those who are suffering around him. Uh, if you're in Africa and you're not ministering to people who are abandoned through HIV and you are ignoring that issue and it's on your doorstep, there's, that's something you should consider. But that should not become the focus of missions. Um, and so the priority of preaching says preaching is the priority and the fruit of that is going to be social action by people who are transformed from inward out, from the inside out. Whereas holistic mission says, actually, no, uh, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you in John 20, 21. And so we are Christ, and he ministered to physical and spiritual. So we need to minister to both of these. They're equal partners. And sometimes they often say they're more or less equal partners. 
And they use that terminology because if you really pin them down, most of them will say, well, okay, so preaching is the priority. But it's more or less equal partners with action because you can't have one with the other. And the, John Stott is one of the people who really promoted this and was instrumental in spreading this and changing this at the different uh, world congresses and Lausanne conferences. Uh, this is a, stoat from him, uh, a quote from Stott. He says, they are like the two blades of a pair of scissors or the two wings of a bird. This partnership is clearly seen in the public ministry of Jesus, who not only preached the gospel, but fed the hungry and healed the sick. In his ministry, kerygma, proclamation, and diakonia, service, went hand in hand. Both were expressions of his compassion for people, and both should be ours. And who's going to argue with that? I mean, how sad to have a one-winged bird, you know? And who, who wants to hand you one blade from a pair of scissors and says, go ahead and cut the paper? No wonder ministry is so tough. You're, you don't have both pairs of the, uh, bla of the, uh, both blades of the pair of scissors. But, you know, it's different than what used to be taught. Moody said, if you have somebody who's hungry and, you're, you want to pre and you have a Bible in one hand and bread in the other, put the bread behind your back and preach the word to them. But that's difficult to do if they're really hungry. And so the way missions has gone is Stott said, well, you've got to have both at the same time. They're, they're equal partners, more or less. And he was criticized for that, and he gets it. He knows why he was criticized, because in 1992, Stott wrote, the main fear of my critics seems to be that missionaries will be sidetracked. And I would agree with that. Listen, I love the idea that you could plant maize in a field with an African guy and have water run in there and be teaching him about the gospel and, and, and teaching him how to farm and, and, and provide for his family at the same time. Uh, ministering to his spiritual needs. I love that idea. It's a great picture. I've just never seen it work. And I've tried it. I, when I, in the 1990s, I was in Malawi in a very rural area, and we had 400 chickens and 50 goats, and we had 100 acres of land, and we were irrigating, and we were putting in water and putting electricity and building an orphanage. I was doing just about everything you could imagine a missionary doing except for the local church. And the local churches were so weak that pastors didn't want to help us teach people the Bible because they didn't feel like they were trained enough to help teach the Bible to our people we were ministering to. And this was a concern. And, and, and uh, Grace Community Church and National Seminary ruined me for that kind of ministry because it has such a high view of the church. And I thought, if we are, if, if we are um, ministering to people who are in uh, rural areas and they need the gospel... Um, Evangelism is, evangelism, is, evangelism is more than just getting a decision. The discipleship involves uh, baptizing and teaching all that the Lord has commanded. Who's going to do the follow-up? If people are coming to Christ, who's going to follow up with them? And if the church isn't there, why aren't we doing church planting, church strengthening? That was my conviction, and that's what ultimately ended up to me leaving uh, that ministry and being involved in more in church ministry. Um, uh, D.A. Carson has a good quote about this, and he says that holistic mission— is a problem is that it's not it's not holistic it's not even halfistic because listen there were days where we woke up and there's no water so you spend half the morning trying to get the pump working because if the pump isn't working then the crops will die and if the crops die then the then then the the the, the mission fails because we don't have money to do this and then somebody broke in the night before and stole chickens. And so then you got students who are up and they're guarding the chicken coop. And then they spray pepper spray in their eyes. And then you're up at three in the morning trying to sort them out. And you're tired because you're putting so much focus 
on ministering to people's physical needs, you don't have time to train people how to preach the word and how to understand the word. So we have these three positions. The first one, priority preaching. The second one, holistic mission. The third one you'd call extreme holism. It's a slippery slope once you start with holistic mission because extreme holism says that human welfare is the goal. It is accomplished through gospel proclamation or social action. And most of the people who hold this position really say that the gospel is accomplished through social action, that the kingdom is, they use the word kingdom, the kingdom is wherever needs are met and wherever shalom is brought to a community. These are the types of words that are found in articles and books that describe extreme holism. So you have these three views, uh, priority of preaching, holistic mission, extreme holism. To summarize these views and give you a word picture to help you remember them, uh, for the priority of, oh, let me just give this quote first. Proponents of extreme holism reject the dichotomy between material and spiritual, between evangelism and social action, between loving God and loving neighbor. Extreme holism, called by different names at times, affirms that evangelism and social transformation are inseparable elements in Christ's kingdom that embraces all of creation. The goal is shalom, a sense of human welfare and well-being that transcends an artificial distinction between private and public worlds. Shalom, by its very nature, is rooted in justice and compassion. And so you have this whole movement of this idea that, hey, we're out there to preach the gospel, and the gospel is anything that builds up the kingdom, and the kingdom is anything where society is advanced, whether that be physically or spiritually. And this goes really well with postmillennialism, as a matter of fact, because uh, we're going to make the world better. The kingdom is now, it's coming, and, and all, all this. In fact, um, uh, if you read any book on missions, it's most likely that if they don't quote David J. Bosch, you will find that, uh, his book, Transforming Mission, in the bibliography of that mission book. He is, he is considered to be uh, uh, by far one of the experts in missions. He's no longer alive, but he was a South African, wrote a thick book called Transforming Mission. And his whole he's really good at observing different trends in missions over the centuries. The problem is he has a multi-meaning hermeneutic, and he also looks at missions with the idea that what is it going to be next? And he's excited about what it might transform into. And my position is that instead of writing a book called Transforming Mission, there should be a book called Reforming Mission, because it doesn't matter what it's going to look like. Uh, uh, what matters is, is what should it look like? And that's where our focus should be. But Bosch says this. He says, the kingdom comes wherever Jesus overcomes the evil one. This happens or ought to happen in its fullest measure in the church, but it also happens in society. So you have this view of extreme holism, which basically says wherever the kingdom is advanced, that's the gospel. That's gospel ministry. That's missions. Or as the liberals would say, that's mission. Um, and so the word picture that goes with each one, the priority of preaching is a sower or a planter. And uh, it's a biblical picture. The guy plants seeds. What is the seed? It's the word going forth. And then if that takes root in someone's life and they're transformed from the outside, they're going to show fruit. That fruit might manifest itself doing some very good social things. Again, Malawi is a country that I lived in for uh, 11 years. It has uh, a population of about 17 million people. There are less than 300 medical doctors in Malawi. If a medical doctor comes to me and says, I'm thinking about giving up my practice here in Beverly Hills and going to Malawi and serve as a doctor there, do you think I should do that? I would say, yes, my family has benefited from missionary doctors. 
my position is not that we shouldn't ever support people to do good kind of uh, mercy ministries. My position is that if that's all we're doing, we're missing our focus. We're missing our mission. We're off track. Um, and so um, we also could be, conf- the gospel could be, become very confused. So the picture is a sower or a planter of the priority of preaching. The holistic mission, the picture is two wings of the same bird. That's what they believe. That's, that's the verbiage that Stott uses. This is the idea that, hey, or that Stott used, this idea that the, the, these are you know, equal partners, more or less. And then there's extreme holism, and that's just a waiter or waitress. Whatever the community needs, whatever they're asking for, whatever they want. They want a new school, let's build a new school. That is gospel ministry. They're crying out for a church, let's get them a church and a pastor. That is gospel ministry. And they don't make a distinction. In fact, they say anybody who makes a distinction makes a false dichotomy. So let's run these different positions through some biblical passages. First of all, how do they view Matthew 28, 18 through 20? This is the Great Commission. The Great Commission is go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Most of you are familiar with this passage. I'll just mention that uh, the main verb here in verse 18, or verse 19 here, is not go, that is a participle, and it could be translated as you are going. The, uh, in spite of the fact that uh, Keith Green wrote a song in the 80s, Jesus commands us to go. It's not a command. It's not an imperative. It's a participle. It's a weak participle, and so it just sounds better to sing Jesus commands us to go than Jesus gave us a weak participle that means as you are going. But that's really what it means. Jesus wasn't commanding them to go anywhere. You go to a missions conference and somebody will major on a minor point. They'll be like, go, go, get out of here. What are you doing here? You should go. You know, you're, you know, if you're a sinner and you stay, then you better be supporting them. I mean, this is the, this is the, 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 the emphasis is on that, but really the idea is we should make disciples. That's the verb. And participles describe the verbs. The participle here is, as you are going, make disciples. And the two descriptive participles that follow that are baptizing and teaching. How do you make disciples? By baptizing and teaching. So you think of that map that I mentioned at the very beginning that's on the wall in the church, and it has Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and it says, go into the world and make disciples. If you have pictures of people who are not primarily baptizing and teaching, they're not fulfilling that mission. They're not fulfilling the Great Commission, unless you broaden the scope of the Great Commission to mean the gospel is anything that uplifts the community. And that's the way missions is headed. Um, So when we think about this passage viewed by the priority of preaching, we call this a key passage, supporting the primary mission of making disciples. If you've gone through MacArthur's four-volume set on the Gospel of Matthew, you get to this passage, the Great Commission, and in the first couple of pages there of his commentary on Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says that this is the climax of the book of Matthew, and that if you miss this, you miss the entire point of the whole Gospel of Matthew. He said it would not be an understatement that since the Gospels are really the focus of, of Jesus's ministry, that this, this is the high point of not only New Testament, but all the Old Testament. And it's a phenomenal quote that he gives, but, but the idea here is this is the Great Commission. Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died as a sacrifice, as a substitute for those who repent and turn and trust in him as Lord and Master. Uh, and, and those who believe 
become disciples, but the disciples are expected to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. And this is a key principle that the church has grasped for centuries. And if they lose this disciple-making and what it is, teaching and baptizing, and by the way, there's a really great institution that does both of those. This is the church. It's like it was made for this commission. So um, so it's, it, the Great Commission is a key passage, whereas holistic mission says, yeah, it's a complementary passage that only emphasizes one side of our mission. And you can read about incarnational ministry and this idea of John 20, verse 21, being the balance of uh, the other type of Great Commission, and that would be the mercy ministry type commission. And um, I think, I personally think they make too much out of that verse in John 20, 21, where Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. In what sense? They translate it as in the sense of Jesus came and ministered to people's physical needs and, and spiritual needs, and that's what we should be doing. I think they're reading more into the text that's there. It's not in every sense. I mean, Jesus doesn't send us out as born of a virgin. Uh, and not every way that Jesus came are we to go out. And so we could talk more about that passage, but just introduce you to that. Extreme holism says that Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is simply a related passage that emphasizes one option of our message. Of our, of our message. We, could, we could minister to people uh, like you're saying, and it's the Great Commission, but it's not the only commission, and we don't have to focus on that. And so uh, one quote that we have from a man named Ulrich Luz. Ulrich Luz is a Swiss theologian. He wrote a, a, a huge commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, he says this, the, the priority of preaching position speaks falsely of the so-called mission command of Matthew 28:19, that had to serve as for a kind of militarization of the practice of missions. God does not say, go and establish churches it is rather a matter of the kingdom of God in the world. So you notice this word kingdom, which is redefined by liberals to mean anything that brings shalom to a community. And therefore, now the whole emphasis of Matthew is kingdom. And therefore, this is the great commission for the kingdom. But it's not really about making disciples through baptizing and teaching. Essentially, that's what he's saying. Ulrich, we're going to come back to him. Ulrich Luz is a great exegete, but he's not so good at interpretation, and I, I have an example of that. Um, so I want to get to this other passage, and that is Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. So this is the sheep and the goats. This is the passage of the separation of the sheep and the goats. This is the passage that the professor had told me early on, hey, this is the foundational passage for social justice, for social action. It's ministering to the least of these. And he believed that the least of these were the universal poor of the world. And you can picture that, right? You can picture a sign with a third world child who's malnourished, and it says, do unto what? The least of these. And if you ask your average church member who the least of these are, they will say the poorest of the poor, the universal poor of the world. And one of the tragedies of this idea is that there's almost this idea that we need to minister to the person on the other side of the world primarily so that God will be, we'll have a platform for them to listen to, to our message. It's, there's almost this idea among some that the gospel itself is not powerful enough to draw people to Jesus Christ, and therefore we need to establish a platform first that will help it along, that will help people to see that we really mean what we say. Um, 
And if there would be a platform, I would propose to you it would not be ministering to the universal poor of the world, although I'm not opposed to ministering to those who are in poverty, and, and I'll get to that. But primarily, it would be, Jesus said what? A new commandment I give you that you what? Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, what? All men will know you are my disciples. You see, if there is a platform that you want to emphasize, it's people should be loving one another in the church to the extent that people outside the church says, I can't believe how they love one another, how they care for one another. But as it is, what's happening in churches in America is you have people spending countless hours and resources and time and, 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 and all their energy focusing on someone in another country, way on the other side of the world, who's, who's just a, a poor person that they're trying to, and they don't know the person next to them, and they don't know people in their church and they're, they're bypassing loving one another, with thinking that the priority should be reaching out to the universal poor of the world. Now, when we look at this passage, I'm going to go ahead and read it, because I think uh, it is significant, and we still have about 20 minutes. I'm going to go through this, and then I'll, I'll hopefully have some time for questions. Um, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, by the way, this is the first time that Jesus has referred to himself as king. So you're reading Matthew, and Matthew's whole theme is that Jesus is the Messiah. And in Matthew 24 and 25, we have the, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus alone, a private sermon for his disciples, and tell us when the kingdom will come. Tell us about the kingdom. And now he's telling them, and he gives a series of parables, and he gets to this one at the end of Matthew 25, the king, and he's talking about himself. And it's just an earth-shattering moment in the book. Um, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, here's one of the keys. He calls them brothers, his brothers, even to the least of them. This is our phrase. You did it to me. For sake of time, I'm going to go ahead. I think you know the rest of it, right? The 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 those who were on his left, um, he tells them that you did not do it unto me. And then at the very end, verse 46: Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, how do these different views, priority of preaching, holistic mission, and extreme holism? How do they view these different passages? Well, the priority of preaching says the least of these are preaching disciples like the one sent out in Matthew 10. Rejecting them is, a representat is representative of rejecting the me message. I'm going, to, I'm going to turn to Matthew 10 in a moment, and we're going to walk through that. This is what I believe. I believe that the least of these are disciples. They are Christians. He says they're brothers of mine. You have four options. They could be his physical half-brothers. I don't think that's likely. They could, he could be talking about the universal brotherhood of all mankind, except for that this term is never used in the New Testament to describe the universal brotherhood of mankind. He could be talking about Jews, except for uh, it, it just doesn't seem like the 
you know, the Jews, and especially like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, you know, the, the chief priests, I, I don't think that that's who he's saying are the least of these. Uh, he could be talking about Christians who are disciples, and I would say primarily disciples who are traveling around preaching. And I'll show you that in just a moment. Um, there's the holistic mission view. It says the least of these are the world's poor or possibly fellow disciples suffering. So you've got fellow disciples who are suffering. You can minister to them. They would be the least of these, but it's also the world's poor because we're to minister to everyone. Jesus wasn't discriminating. He ministered to people who weren't necessarily believers, to their physical needs, uh, and then he called them to repentance. So that's what we should do. And then we have extreme holism. The least of these are the world's poor, and this is the common interpretation of the passage. Now, go back to Ulrich Luz. I mentioned to you, this guy, he, for years he's been working through Matthew. When I asked my advisor on my dissertation, what commentaries do I need to deal with? This was at the top of the list because Ulrich is a, is a great exegete. His exegesis is good. He says, Matthew's original readers would have thought primarily of the itinerant radicals preaching disciples, remembering the disciples' discourse of chapter 10 that spoke of the disciples' wanderings and outsider status, of their poverty, of their dependence on hospitality, and of the dangers they encounter in a hostile world as they face trials and risk their lives. Above all, however, they will think of the end of the disciples' discourse where they are called to extend hospitality to the wandering brothers and sisters. Listen to this. So we have these who are brothers. Seems most likely we're talking about believers here. But also, they are called the least of these. Now this, if you know throughout Matthew, and uh, Jesus sometimes called disciples little ones, mikroi, right? And you say, well, least of these is not mikroi. It's a different word. It is a different word, but it is the superlative of mikroi. The superlative is the greatest. You know, if I say, hey, that's good, that's good, or you're good, you're good. If I say you're the best, the best is the superlative of good. You say, well, in English, it's not gooder or goodest. No, it's best. Well, best doesn't even sound like mikroi or like, like good, right? Well, the superlative of little ones, mikroi, is actually the word that is translated here as least of these. So I believe that there's a, a connection here uh, I'm not going to go to the grave on this, but I, I really think that we talk about least of these. He, he often referred to his disciples as little ones. Now, listen to Matthew chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. I'm going to read um, some of these passages. Um, so Matthew 10, I'll, I'll start in verse 42, and then I'll go up to the beginning or to verse 5. Uh, Matthew 10, verse 42, and whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So there's a lot of similarities here. Uh, little ones, he's saying if anyone goes because they're a disciple and gives them water, a cup of cold water, even the, li the little ones, he calls his disciples. Remember in Matthew 10, Jesus is sending out his 12 to the lost sheep of Israel. So you can picture yourself being a Jew in Israel and having a disciple come to your town. First, it was the 12. Later in Luke chapter 10, he sends out the 70 with very similar instructions. And a guy shows up 
and into your town, and he doesn't have an extra cloak, and he doesn't have extra bag, and he is promised that he'll be beaten, and they'll promise he'll be standing before kings and, and courts, and uh, he, he's supposed to rely on people's hospitality, and he's preaching, the Messiah is here, and it's Jesus of Nazareth, and you welcome him in your home. You've received him. Why would you do that? Only if you believed his message. If a Jehovah's Witness came to your town and said, hey, could we, could we stay at your house, show some hospitality to us so we can preach a false gospel? You would say, no. Why? Because I don't believe your message. But if someone who was a shepherd's conference guy that needed a place to stay and that needed help and was a faithful preacher and really struggling, you'd bend over backwards. Why? Because you believe in his message. Now listen to Matthew 10, verse 5. These 12, Jesus sent out after instructing, them, after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Skip down to verse 8. Freely you received, freely give. Verse 9. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. Verse 10 or a bag for your journey, or even two coats, or sandals, or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his sport. How many of you packed a bag coming here to the Shepherd's Conference? Shame on you. Yes, yeah, so the, the, I mean, but do you get the picture? We wouldn't think of not taking at least a carry-on, right? Actually, we wouldn't think of taking more than a carry-on either nowadays. But, but the, uh, the idea is that these guys weren't to acquire books to take with them, all right? They're to go with very little. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment for than that city. What city? The one that doesn't welcome them. So we got this idea of judgment. Verse 17, but beware of men, for they will hand you over to courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Verse 18 of Matthew 10, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Matthew 10, 27 through 28, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops, do not fear those who kill the body, but unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the, the soul and the body in hell. And then verses 40 through 42 of Matthew chapter 10. He who receives you receives me. You see the personification there? You know, when, when, when Paul or Saul was, was on the Damascus Road, and Jesus appeared to him. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? He doesn't say my church, me. You see the identification? If you interpret that the least of these are the universal poor of the world, you have to say that Jesus is somehow identifying himself with people who are the universal poor, and that somehow those who minister to them get salvation, which has a soteriological implication that just doesn't blend with the rest of Scripture. But if you say that the least of these are disciples, especially preaching disciples who need hospitality, who need to be cared for in prison, who you're going to risk your life to do that, you do that, and you are going to heaven. You are on his right side. Somebody said to me, now, is that his right or my right? Because I don't want to get that wrong. But I think they're missing the point. This is about the kingdom. Listen, if you're a believer today, you're raptured, right? All of it discourse is about the future kingdom. At the end of the tribulation period, during the tribulation, there will be those who are out there preaching and proclaiming. There will be thousands of Jews who are saved. And this is speaking about that future time. And the king comes, and the king is Jesus. And it's at that time, at the end of the tribulation, the beginning of the millennium, where he separates the sheep from the goats. And unless you're going to spiritualize this, I don't know where else you're going to put that. And, 
And so why are the sheep on his right? And it's his right, by the way. But you won't have to make that decision. I mean, I suppose you might. I mean, you might be there only if you come down to glory with him because you're a, 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 a Christian who was raptured and taken up, or if you are not a Christian and you happen to live through this, uh, the tribulation and then you're there and you get saved during the tribulation, then he will put you. The emphasis is on him putting you. You're being placed. You're not deciding which side you're going to be on. It's judgment time. It's too late. And so you're on his right or on his left. You're a sheep or you're a goat. And when he says, as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me, it's not because they did some works that earned their way to heaven. It's because they evidenced their belief in the message of the messenger. And if you think it was hard for the disciples to go out in the, in the, to the lost sheep of Israel in that, uh, in that first century, and the persecution of the day, imagine what it's going to be like when the Antichrist is in control, the second three and a half years of the tribulation for those who are risking their lives going into villages. And what's it going to say of people who help them? They're believers. It's their faith that saves them. They've evidenced that faith by showing hospitality to the least of those who have been preaching. Verse 21 of Matthew 10, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. If in the first century people are putting people to death for the gospel, for believing it, what's it going to be like in the time of the tribulation? So I ask you, who else? If you're, Matthew, if you're reading Matthew's gospel in the first century or you're the disciples listening to them and he says, hey, there's going to be people without any money, without any extra clothes, with instructions to, to stay with those who welcomed them, with the knowledge that many would not receive them, that they'd be standing before courts, they'd be beaten, they'd be divided over their message. If you're a disciple, you'd say, yeah, I remember those days. I remember what that was like, and I remember people who welcomed me in. And so who else would be in need like that? Kevin DeYoung has said, Matthew 25 is about social justice in the sense that it's about caring for the needy, but the needy in view are fellow Christians, especially those who depend on our hospitality and generosity for their mission. Um, this is where we come back to Ulrich, and then I'll open up for some questions. Ulrich Luz, he gets it right here, doesn't he? He gets it right. He's the first commentator I saw that really spelled out the connection between Matthew 10 and Matthew 25. His exegesis is good. He gets it. Matthew's readers would have understood that the least of these are the preaching disciples from Matthew 10. He doesn't go into the whole millennial, millennial thing, but, but that's okay. He makes this connection, which is a good one, because in Matthew's readers, they would have thought, oh, I remember what that was like. This is what he goes on to say, and this is what happens when you want to believe something so much that you can have the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Ulrich Luz says this, the universal interpretation of our text is at the heart of the gospel because it exposes fundamental areas of, of life to, to Jesus's gospel and unconditional love. He's majoring on that Jesus is a, a God of love. He's going to want to minister to those who physical needs. Exegetically, it does not represent Matthew's view. In all probability, the evangelists saw in Jesus's needy brothers, not every needy human being, but only needy disciples. Thus, the question for us is, are we theologically justified in interpreting a text contrary to its original sense when the resulting meaning is central to the gospel itself and helpful for modern people who receive it? In this case, I would like to answer the question with yes. 
And as you're reading his big commentary, that's when you fall off your chair. Because you're like, what? You understood the passage. You got it. And yet you're, you're saying that you could believe something that Matthew's readers would have never believed. Yeah, because he has a multi-meaning hermeneutic. And to them, it meant this. But to us, it could mean ministering to the world's poor. And he goes on for about six more pages explaining why he could say yes. So that is a whirlwind 40-minute tour of three different views on gospel proclamation versus social action and how you might run it through the grid of different passages, especially two key passages, Matthew 28 and Matthew 25. We've got five minutes, and I want you to be able to get your seat and everything. So any questions? Great. Oh, yes. Yeah. This is, this is a much more difficult question than you can possibly imagine, because theologically, we could sit here and pontificate it all day long, but when you're in the village and there are people who are dying next to you of starvation, it's hard. It's super hard. And that's why I say I, I'm not against uh, churches having a certain percentage of their focus being on ministering to physical needs, but they better be tied in with a local church ideally as national run and less missionary dependent as possible that is preaching the word of God. But my 30-second answer to the problem of poverty and social needs in Africa is that the answer for that is to put a godly man in every village who is preaching the word of God without any compromise, passionately and accurately exposing the truth of God so that those who hear it may be transformed from the inside out, and they will naturally reach out to their neighbors around them. But that's not going to happen for a whole continent in one generation. And that's why I think we need to have a hundred-year idea of multi-generational bringing communities up in their understanding of the Word of God. And think about it. In the 1800s, you had, um, uh, in Malawi, you had David Livingston establishing churches and Reformed theology coming in. And um, there are lots of Malawians with Scottish names because of the missionary presence there that's been there uh, for decades, uh, more than 100 years, 150 years. And so, but the issue is we've never trained them to the same level that we're being trained. So there is a seminary in Malawi that was part of what I was helping to establish. TMAI can give you all the information about it. If you want to talk to me about it, we'd love to. If you want to help a guy get more training who's already pastoring, we have a place that can give him the world-class seminary training in Malawi. So that's, that's where I'd go with that. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. 
Let, let me just comment on that in a second. One of the reasons why I think this is a vital issue is because it's happening on the mission field. And a lot of times what happens on the mission field is a precursor of what happens in the church. You look at liberal seminaries, it's the missions department that starts to drift first sometimes. So uh, you, you, have to, you have to say, is this happening to the church in America? And yeah, we're losing our focus. And so we need to be careful of that. And this is, this is one of the dangers that we're sidetracked. We need to focus on ministry of the word. And listen, I, people say, well, you know, I, that, that pastor, he only preaches and he doesn't help anybody or whatever. Who's that pastor? I've never met him. I've never met, I've never met a godly pastor that doesn't have a heart for those who are hurting around him. We can all grow and, and mature in different ways, but to, to blanket categorize people and say they don't do anything socially for anyone, who does that? What kind of Christian has a heart that they don't care for those who are suffering? How can that happen? I, I, I don't see it. I don't see somebody totally black and white like that. One more question. Yes. Right. So the, right. So I, I believe that those miracles that accompanied the ministry of the word were confirmation that the word was from God. And Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4, tells us that, um, let me just read this here a sec. Um, Hebrews 2, verse 3 says, um, how will we escape if we ne neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them by signs and wonders, by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And by the way, you know, those miracles, those signs and wonders, they confirmed that the message was from God. And so it, it was a testimony. It was a confirmation how do you know that what I do, I would love to have those signs and gifts. I think that'd be great. I'd like the one Moses had where he sticks his hand in his cloak and it's leprosy. I'd love that. Be people at the door and say, oh, I got my leprosy hand on again or whatever, you know. But, you know, that's just, there's no reason for me to want that. Why? Because how can you tell if I'm preaching the word of God? I have the word of God. So if I need to confirm it with signs and wonders, why have the word of God? Uh, unless there's future revelation, for more revelation coming today, which... We believe the word of God is sufficient. Listen, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to take time to go through these, but signs and wonders, you can run these different positions, these different, these three different positions on mission and, and run it through the grid of signs and wonders. Uh, traditional prioritism says it's validation or confirmation of the message spoken, but the focus was always on the message. Restraint holism says it's an example of uh, Jesus's compassion and social action toward the poor. And uh, re revisionist holism, uh, examples of Jesus's compassion and social action toward the poor. So, you know, that, that's if you want to get a copy of this, you can Google on the Internet, um, Brian Biedebach and Matthew 28 and missionaries in Malawi. You can get my dissertation and download all, I don't know how many pages, but uh, you'll get all the, the, this same graphic. Okay. Hey, guys, let me pray. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being here. Lord, our heart is to do your work, and we do care about those who are suffering, and we do want to help people who want to help those who are, are, are in need of physical um, assistance. But we realize that if we get totally sidetracked doing that, 
that we'll be off course and out of focus on the mission that you've given us to do on the Great Commission. And so I pray, I pray, Lord, for these men as they go back to their churches, that they're able to encourage and revitalize their mission programs to have a focus and a passion for what you would have them focus on, and that, um, and that our mission would be your mission. And, and Lord, we pray that you'd help us have the right balance in that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.